Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gettler. And this is episode 42 in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday the 18th of November. And Leon, this week we've got a fascinating interview with Renzo Sacco, who's the head of the Activator at RMIT. That's right. The Activator is an incubator for startup businesses and students put up their startup business ideas and the activator helps develop them and it's actually being launched next week all the young entrepreneurs and some of them not so young and the guys that have got great ideas like maybe instagram or something like it uh, and bear in mind that we are already developing robotic responses on in the cloud and on the internet and the government's just signing a deal with microsoft to do exactly that you'll be talking to a Robot. This this RMIT activator is very much like the activators they've got going at places like MIT and Cambridge. And those two universities are probably the leading uh, source of entrepreneurs in the world. Then, of course, we've got Shane Oliver, chief economist of the AMP, to talk to us about the economy. That's right. He's going to be talking to us all about the what. Trump's election means for the Australian market and for interest rates. So let's listen to Renzo Skako. Renzo Skako, tell us about the RMIT Activator. Sure, Leon. So the Activator is um, a new but not so new initiative within RMIT. So as you know, we've had a lot of our students create their own businesses, have been doing for so long. So we have a very entrepreneurial uh, student base. The Activator is really turbocharging that. So we're creating probably a multi-layered model where we're going to provide some education for students uh, around graduate capabilities. We know that's really important for them. Some of those things are really important for entrepreneurship but they're graduate skills but we're also providing a forum where if you've got an idea for a business we're going to create a safe to fail environment where you can actually come and test that idea so let's just see how good it is and there'll be a couple of outcomes of that so some of it might be wow this could really be something that I could create a a venture and create my own employment maybe my own company but you might also come out of it thinking oh Renzo that wasn't such a great idea but look at the things that I learnt I learned how to create ideas. I learned how to validate a market. I learned how to find a customer. I learned how to manage a business. So again, these are very transferable skills. But if you do have a cracking idea, and we've got a lot of students and our staff and our research teams have got some great ideas, then we're going to have some very deep programs around how do you create your own business. And, and so tell us some of these businesses that have come out of this. So so it's it's new in terms of the activator. So we've been running for five months and, and we've been running internally. So we've done our internal launch as such, Leon. So so we've just been overwhelmed with demand. I mean, we've had 460 registrations of interest already. So the demand's out there. However, before, um, before we officially open for business, which is on the 23rd of this month, on this floor where we are here, we've got something like 30 folk active working on their startup and about 15 teams, ranging from clothing exchange to unmanned vehicles to gamification of various things. Some of our people are working with corporates already, got a crowd who are working on virtual novels. So the range of ideas is really broad. And when you think of our student population of 84,000 and all the different schools and disciplines we've got, I think that's going to be the fun bit. We're going to have all kinds of different ideas. Do you have any interface with venture capitalists or financiers who might be interested in um, in the automated 
car, for example, it's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. So the nice thing is, you know, RMIT are putting some significant funds behind how we're going to support our startups. I want to be very clear that not everyone who's going to come into the activator is going to get funding. So it's going to be a selective basis. And we are developing a capital strategy that says, how do we bring some venture capital players or some other funding partners to this? Because I think it looks pretty evident that we're going to have some significant startups coming out of here. The other one that I should say is that whilst a lot of it is around students and our staffing, it, there's also a research and innovation element to this. So we expect to launch a range of research and innovation-led startups out of the activator. So this would be maybe it's a good idea, but it ought to go to somebody, you know, a corporate who would you could sell it on to a corporate. They see the opportunity, they fund it and take the student in. It could be, or it could come straight out of a research. So if I, if I go back to research and innovation as an example, so when we create you know, the wonderful ideas we have around innovation, yeah. research and technology, we'll come to a decision point that says, what do we do with it? Do we license it? Do we sell it? Do we continue to develop it ourselves? Do we park the idea? One of those decision points could be, no, let's create a startup. This is large enough to be commercialised. But the reality is it's going to take significant funding beyond the university's capabilities to, to kickstart this and to actually create something that could be extremely large. This, this is quite exciting because it's kind of stuff we're seeing overseas at places like MIT and Cambridge. Correct. And so this is really going to change everything, isn't it? Uh, it's going to create a real startup hub. Absolutely, Leon, and that's, that's exactly what we want RMIT, I won't say to be known for, because I think we're... we're there's an expectation and there's actually a track record that that's what's happening. And as I say, the way I like to explain the activator is we're going to chirp, turbocharge what we've been doing. We do want our current students to know that there's a great prospect to start your own business. And we already know a lot of our students who come here ultimately want to work for themselves. Yeah, and RMIT's name wouldn't hurt you, but nonetheless, Australia traditionally has been tough to raise money for a local idea, hasn't it? Sure, yeah. So so I think it's, it's an interesting conversation because some people say it's really hard to have money, to find money. You talk to the capital players and they'll go, there's plenty of money, we need great ideas. And I think that's always going to be the challenge. So one of the things that I think the activator can do is create this great pipeline of deal flow. We are currently developing our capital strategy around, so what's our role? Are we a pre-seed funder? We probably are. But down the track, as some of these ideas really start to take off, you might find that RMIT takes a stake in it. Is it going to be a, a controlling stake or majority? Probably not. But I think what's happening is we have potential funding partners actually knocking on the door saying, can we come and play? RMIT, if it says we think this has got legs, that's at least a couple of steps up, isn't it? Absolutely. So, so at the moment, if I'm a student and I've got this great startup idea, where do I go? So there's a whole bunch of co-located workspaces. We don't lack for those actually in Melbourne. But then you're kind of doing it on your own. You've got to find angel investors or the venture capital folks. So, so part of our education is we're going to teach you how do you pitch for funds? And ultimately, if I'm going to fund your business, I'm looking just as much as the validity of the idea as how strong a team are you? So there are some of the things we're going to teach our startups. How do you how do you recruit in a startup? How do you find a customer? How do you validate that idea? 
how do you probably bring technology into this? So I suppose our vision is that we want to create really strong enterprise skills in our students. The other, the other part of this is we've got a lot of students who are saying, I don't have a startup idea. I don't want to work in a startup. Or sorry, I don't want to create my own startup. But can I come and work in your startups while I'm studying? So we've got a great opportunity to give real life experience to our students working in startups. And the flip side is we actually want startups knocking on our door saying, can we have your activated graduates come and work for us? So again, there's lots of different outcomes and lots of different pathways. That's why I think this is really exciting. Now, have you done any forecasts of how it's going to develop? Yes. So currently, as I say, we've I think we've been live. We've had a we've had a microsite open for registrations of interest for five weeks. I think we've had two thousand website hits already. One in four of those have been I want to get involved, and that involvement stems from can I get involved working with startups? I have an idea. I have an early stage startup. I've actually got a startup, and I'm looking for funding. Now, what if uh, I'm not an RMIT student, mm-hmm. but I have a startup idea? Can I still approach the activator? Not right now. So at the moment, it is geared for students, RMIT students and the beauty is we've got so many of them we've also got the different locations so so you were saying before Leon about forecasting out we actually want to build several of these so today we're sitting in building 98 in the city um, but we our vision is we want to build a fashion and textile oriented one out of Brunswick we want to build an engineering focused one out of Bandura probably a life sciences and a food tech one out of Bandura so we're potentially going to build three of these we want to build something out in Vietnam I have this crazy vision in my mind that if I stood in in the middle of one of our Vietnam campuses and said, who has a business idea who'd like to start up their own business, I probably need to get out of the way. So again, we want to, we want to I suppose, respond to what I think the demand is there. And our um, education partner in, uh, in Singapore, Singapore Institute of Management, wanting to talk to us about how do we create an activator program in Singapore. So we're creating our own ecosystem within RMIT. Right. So I think that's part of the vision. It is for students for the moment. It's certainly for RMIT alumni. I can see I can see a point where we will be open to the public. I think we need to service our students first. And finally, the thing about Silicon Valley mm-hmm. is that failure is not failure. Failure is experience. Correct. And I perceive that you will be following a similar... Very much so. So we're going to have some great ideas, but we also want to measure sustainability. But I suppose as one of RMIT's graduates, uh, who, we, who we work closely with, a lady by the name of Georgia Beattie, who's currently the CEO of uh, Startup Victoria, uh, and I'm sure Georgia won't mind me quoting her. One of the things she said recently to me is, I've just turned 30, I had a great business idea, I've sold the company. I hope that's not the only great idea I have in my life. So learning to fail is going to be important. It's not just about the number of businesses we start. It might take you three or four ideas or iterations to get successful. Or you might decide, I actually like a monthly paycheck, but I've learned all these different things. So we want that safe to fail environment, but we also want to celebrate some great successes. Renzo, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Well, it's all pretty exciting, isn't it? I think it's I think it's absolutely brilliant. You know, it's a it's a great concept and if we can develop some terrific entrepreneurs out of this, it will do the economy a lot of good. Yeah, it provides focus for the production of entrepreneurs and RMIT with 80 odd thousand students and a lot of clout is a good base for for doing it. It's the kind of thing universities should be doing. And now Shane Oliver 
Shane Oliver, Donald Trump's election has actually moved markets, has been all over the place. They surged last week, then towards the end of the week, they backtracked a bit. And I mean, what's what's your view about it? Well, we've certainly seen a bit of a volatile ride when the news came through initially that he would likely win. Um, share markets fell, and that was on fear of a, sort of a trade war being kicked off by his policies and, of course, general uncertainty about what his policies would, would be. And then, of course, uh, his... Um, his post-victory or his victory speech seemed uh, somewhat conciliatory and investors took the view, well, maybe he's going to be OK after all. And of course, uh, there was then a focus on the stimulus uh, measures that he was proposing, you know, the tax cuts, deregulation, infrastructure spending and the like. And that's all share markets rebound. And of course, uh, more recently, the last uh, day or so, you've seen a bit of a pullback from that. But nevertheless, over the course of the week, share markets did rise. So generally speaking, his, his election has been taken taken reasonably well by financial markets. I think at the end of the day, though, investors are still trying to weigh up um, which aspects of his policies he will give the most focus to. And uh, and at the moment, it seems there's a bit of a leaning towards more of a focus on the positive aspects. But if, if of course, the key focus is, is on uh, putting up tariff barriers against China and Mexico, then investors might start to take a, a more negative view. Of course, it's hit emerging markets, hasn't it? Emerging markets have been hit. And that's uh, for a couple of reasons. Obviously, worries about some sort of trade war, particularly in uh, South American countries with Mexico taking the brunt of that. So that's the uh, first reason why they've been hit. The second reason, of course, is that um, uh, as uh, optimism about the US economy has increased, um, that's pushed the value of the US dollar up, which has pushed down the value of emerging market currencies uh, right around the world, including in Asia. And that, of course, leads to concerns that at some point, one or two or, or a few of these countries might run into trouble in, in terms of servicing their US dollar denominated debt, because something like 80% of foreign debts in the emerging world is in uh, is in US dollars. So that's the concern there that um, the rising US dollar might eventually cause problems for them. And that's similar to the worries we had uh, through the second half of last year when the US dollar went up, worries that there'll be some sort of emerging market crisis sort of kicked off um, at some point. So far, there's no sign of that crisis, but that's what investors in the emerging world are worried about. So the issue is actually distinguishing how much is going to be Trump the Trump the president versus Trump versus his rhetoric as a candidate. That's right. Um, and typically, uh, that, that raises an interesting point. Typically, uh, po- uh, politicians are running as candidates. Their rhetoric tends to be a lot more aggressive. And then when they become actual, uh, they, they get elected, they find that economic and political ra- realities start to kick in and they become more pragmatic. Um, and so, yeah, it does come down to whether we get... Uh, as president, Trump, the uh, the pragmatist, um, more willing to cut deals, much like a businessman would, and therefore take a more pragmatic approach, and I guess a more sensible approach to uh, to or whether we get Trump, the populist, the one that we saw on the campaign trail, um, and therefore take a much harder line in terms of things like uh, you know trade barriers and so on. Um, at this stage, it's a bit early to tell, but I, I guess the only thing we've got to go on is the um, the uh, his victory speech, and it was it was somewhat conciliatory and. I guess at the moment, though, the focus is going to be on his uh, appointments of key people in his team. And if they're, you know, radical and 
seen as a bit unreliable, then uh, obviously markets will take a dim view. But if he appoints people who are seen as uh, um, stable and willing to cut deals and uh, pragmatic, then, of course, markets will take a more positive view. I noticed that Nouriel Rabini in today's uh, Financial Review is saying Trump is more likely to take a centrist approach uh, because he's basically a pragmatist and uh, he's into the art of the deal. What's your view about that? I think that's probably right. Um, Of course, when you go through a long campaign, which we saw through the primaries, it's almost been going on for a year now. Um, many of us are, of course, used to Trump the populist. And, but uh, now we've perhaps got to get used to a, a different Donald Trump, you know, perhaps the Donald Trump that prevailed when he was a businessman, someone who cut a deal, someone who's a lot more pragmatic about things. And I guess that's why markets have sort of relaxed a little bit from their very initial reaction, which was a negative reaction, to now one which is a bit more, a bit more on the positive side. There are issues, of course, about the US Federal Reserve. I mean, uh, he has criticised Janet Yellen for being political uh, with her uh, attitude towards rate hikes. And there's an indication that uh, she might be replaced in 2018. And he's uh, also expressed interest in the audit the Fed movement, I mean, which means more political interference in the Fed. And that would, of course, signal uh, hikes in US interest rates. Uh, what's your view about that? I think there, there are some concerns there. Um, one of the lessons uh, from the 1970s was that if you, if you want to be successful, you really need to, to have an independent central bank, because having the interest rate levers in the hands of politicians is not necessarily a good thing. Um, and so the independence of the, uh, the central bank, the, the Federal Reserve in the US, the the Reserve Bank in Australia and, uh, of course, uh, New Zealand, of course, set the trend on all of this, um, is, is something that I guess financial markets um, regard as very important. And, of course, if there was a reversal of that, that would be seen as a concern. Um, at this stage, he has made critical comments of Janet Yellen, but he's also said that he has great respect for her. And I get the impression that he probably won't... Um, seek to replace her immediately. Her term does run into 2018, um, and I expect that she'll, she'll most likely run that full term. But beyond that, it's quite probable that he would replace her, probably with someone who's a little less dovish, a bit more on the on the hawkish side, and that might ultimately lead to higher interest rates, which I guess in a way is perverse. Uh, politicians normally like lower interest rates, but uh, in recent times we've had we've had ultra low interest rates, and that's caused a bit of a backlash as well. But I, I, I actually think that... Um, all this focus on the central bank, um, on the Fed, is a bit unfair. Um, the reason that the Fed had to uh, adopt such extreme policies was because of the mess that was made in the ninth, in last decade with the GFC. And, of course, the fact that uh, public debt had already risen to very high level and there was a reluctance on the part of politicians to continue um, expanding public debt. Um, so that's why the Fed and other central banks around the world have had to jump in and fill the gap because end of the day, um, the Fed still has a mandate to fulfil its full employment and inflation around 2%. Um, and so that's they've, they've tried to do that. But they've only got one or two levers. There's not a lot they can do. So I think criticising the Fed is a bit misplaced. The real issue is you know, the GFC and how we got into that mess in the first place and the fact that, that public debt uh, levels are very, very high. Now, uh, last week, of course, New Zealand was the first bank out of the block. Uh, the New Zealand Central Bank uh, rate, uh, cut their interest rates uh, in anticipation of increased political uncertainty. And uh, I noticed uh, in, the, in the lead up to the US election, you were saying that the RBA here might cut interest rates uh, if there is a Trump victory. I mean, what's your view about that? Well, I guess uh, it, it all depended on what sort of way markets went in response to that Trump victory. I think if a Trump victory had kicked off or um, been seen to be associated with incredible uncertainty in financial markets, 
for a longer period, much like we saw initially with Brexit, um, then I think it may have been a reason for uh, the Fed to delay raising rates in in December and, of course, would then increase the chance that we'd um, see a, a quicker cut or, you know, would add to the case for a cut, rate cut in Australia. Um, as it's turned out, the reaction to Donald Trump's victory, the negative reaction was very brief, you know, no more than a few hours, and um, the positive reaction has predominated. Therefore, it's unlikely that it's going to cause the Fed to delay. In fact, there's something like an 80, according to the US money market, there's something like an 84% probability of a Fed rate hike in December. And so, a delay there seems unlikely, and and the great scheme of things, if it hasn't had a negative impact on global economic activity, which seems unlikely at this stage, then uh, it probably is fairly neutral for what the Reserve Bank will do in the short term. So the the Reserve Bank of New Zealand did uh, cut, but I think that was for domestic uh, reasons. I don't think that was in response to the uncertainty caused by Donald Trump. I think it was more the RBNZ just wanting to get more confidence that their inflation rate would head up um, towards their targets and that growth would pick up. So I think think it was more domestic factors. And I think at the end of the day, Donald Trump's uh, elevation to president, since it's been taken reasonably positively by global financial markets, except in the emerging world, does, doesn't uh, sort of add to the case for the Reserve Bank cutting rates. So I, I think the, the case for Reserve Bank cutting rates is still there, but it's probably a 2017 story before we get to that point. Well, it's, uh, finally, I mean, the uh, the RBA is, is bringing out the minutes of its uh, meeting from November this week. And of course, Philip Lowe is uh, talking to a CEDAR event uh, tomorrow night. What do, do you expect there'll be any indication of which way the RBA will be going on interest rates? I think those, uh, those two events, the minutes, and a um, uh, speech by uh, Philip Lowe will provide some guidance, but it will probably be along the lines of, of neutrality. The most recent meeting two weeks ago from the Reserve Bank was somewhat neutral in terms of um, its view on the outlook for interest rate, you know, really just weighing up the positives and negatives and seem to come down hard in favour of leaving rates on hold for the time being. And I, I suspect that the minutes will simply reaffirm that. And likewise, the uh, the comments by Philip Lowe, I think he'll probably continue to do what he's said in uh, previous uh, speeches that he's made um, since he's become governor. And that is that, yes, there is a concern with inflation remaining low and they have to guard against inflationary expectations falling further. But by the same token, there's a danger in pushing, trying to push inflation up to quickly for fear that it could create financial instability due to lower and lower interest rates. So I think there's a bit of a balancing act going on there for the Reserve Bank, and that's probably the message that they will deliver, which I think will then leave the the, the, the way clear for them leaving interest rates, you know, unless something drastically goes wrong in the next few weeks, um, that'll leave the, the, the way clear for them to leave interest rates on hold in December. And then it really becomes an issue for next year. On the one hand, if we have a stronger US economy and stronger commodity prices, that would be an argument against another rate cut. On the other hand, though, um, my feeling is that inflation will probably continue to surprise on the downside relative to the Reserve Bank's own expectations, which um, will keep alive the prospect of a rate cut again sometime in the first half of next year. And that indeed is what we've penciled in. And finally, uh, with the, the US Fed raising rates, uh, the prospect of any rate hike in Australia is probably a story for 2018. Would you agree with that? I, I would totally agree with that. Um, if you look at it a little bit longer, if the uh, you're seeing the sort of great policy rotation in the US away from relying as much on monetary policy, more towards reliance on fiscal stimulus and deregulation or structural reform to drive growth, then that could add upwards pressure to US growth and could result in a, in a faster pace of Fed interest rate hikes through next year. Um, now, if the US economy picks up, 
um, that should be good for the global economy and therefore could set the scene for Australian interest rates to start moving higher in uh, in 2018. But yeah, I'd, I'd agree that's a 28, 2018 story. It usually takes a while for these things to flow through to Australia. We don't always follow the Fed on interest rates. We we didn't last year. And of course, um, yeah, we were raising interest rates uh, after the GFC. They didn't. So we don't always follow the US. But I think the US does set the scene and start to become a stronger economy as we go through next year. That will ultimately set the scene for us to raise rates in 2018. Shane Oliver, it's delightful talking to you again. Thank you very much for your time. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the program. So what do you think about that, Leon? A lot of it really depends on uh, where Trump goes with his economics. So, and the market really doesn't know yet. I don't think Trump knows either, come to that's that. That's right, that's right. We've got to work out exactly where he's going to fit in. What was said during the campaign is actually delivered. And if it's not, of course, some of it is going to cause a lot of disappointment and protests, I would think. I would imagine so. And now the news, which uh, kicks off with Donald Trump. That's right, Gary. Donald Trump's stunning victory for the White House may mark the long-awaited end to more than 30-year bull run in bonds as bets on faster US growth and inflation have led investors to favour stocks over bonds. His shock victory in the US presidential election wiped more than $1 trillion off the face of global bond markets in two days, and that sparked a warning from Watermark Fund's Management Chief Investment Officer Jason Breitling that it's setting the share market up for a strong fall. President elect Trump has pledged to massively increase infrastructure spending, which has caused a big shift away from the safety of government debt and into the shares of companies who may cash in on any spending bonanza. The wider stock market has also risen on the back of investors' predictions of increased growth. Turning on the government spending taps would push up inflation, meaning that the already meagre returns on US bonds would head into negative territory, adding more reason to sell and move into riskier assets. The rush to sell bonds sent interest rates on longer-dated US government debt to their highest level since January, with the yield on 30-year bonds increasing at a its fastest pace since January 2009. So let's just watch that space. And of course, uh, the warning is that all of this uh, has developed, could actually be just a sugar hit for the equity markets. It ain't going to do too much for the poor sods who voted for Trump. So let's just watch that space. Now, Reserve Bank of Australia Governor Philip Lowe said Donald Trump's trade policy is dangerous and he's warned that high household debt could create problems if economy starts to deteriorate, in a speech of the Committee for Economic Development of Australia, Dr Lowe said Australia needed what he called adequate buffers in place to deal with future shocks wherever they come from. And he warned that if Mr Trump kept his promise to slap 45% tariffs on China, quote, there would be some response from China which would not be good for the US or Chinese economy, and by extension, it would not be good for us. Lowe did not see a problem with Trump's infrastructure spending plans, pointing out that the group of 20 top economies meetings have been calling on this, for this to happen for the last three to four years to stimulate more economic activity. And the fact that this was pushing up bond yields reflected market expectations of higher inflation, which he said was not a bad thing because uh, inflation has been trending so much lower. He didn't see US debt as problematic. What would be problematic, he said, would be a retreat from openness. Yeah, and at the moment it's pretty opaque in there over in Washington. Absolutely. The other interesting piece of news, Gary, is the US government has suspended its efforts to pass President Obama's signature trade Pacific partnership before President-elect Donald Trump takes office. And the US Trade Representative Office has spent the last few months lobbying US lawmakers, but the surprising election result, which saw Trump take the White House and the Republicans take a majority in Congress, has changed everything. Instead, it's now saying it's up to Republican leaders in Congress to clinch the vote. Now, without US involvement, there can be no 
TPP. And Trump, of course, had campaigned against the TPP, calling it a disaster, a rape of our country. He claimed he would send jobs overseas. He would send jobs overseas. He's also pledged to renegotiate the 22-year-old North American Free Trade Agreement and adopt a much tougher trade stance with China. His anti-trade campaign and pledge to staunch the flow of imported goods from China and Mexico won him crucial blue-collar votes in what once been Democratic heartland states of Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, helping swing the result his way. Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, who once hailed the TPP as a gigantic foundation stone for the economy, put, a f- put in a 15-minute phone call to congratulate him, and during that call, he'd urged Mr Trump to rethink his opposition to the 12-nation TPP, which aims to reduce trade barriers erected by some of the fastest-growing economies in Asia and boost ties with US allies in the region in the face of China's rising influence. But he failed to persuade Trump, and failure to endorse the TPP is a positive for the rising power of China. And what it means, Gary, is that Australia will have to pursue other regional trade deals like ASEAN's planned Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership that China sees as the alternative to the TPP, which had actually excluded Beijing. It's all rather dangerous. I mean, isolationism, protectionism, this sort of thing, seem to be the bulwarks of Trump's policy if he's got one. That's right, yeah. That's not a good look for the world's biggest economy. Calls into question all these different trade deals, like NAFTA. And, of course, the TPP now looks like it won't get up. Well, yeah, and Australia is a small player in this, and, and certainly some of the trade deals that have been done, notably the one with Japan, some of the, the deals pro-Australia uh, don't come in for a decade or more. The other interesting piece of news related to that is that China has singled out Australia as a key partner in a renewed push for regional free trade pact at a meeting of Asia-Pacific leaders this week. And the move comes as China looks to fill the gap left by the US after the surprise election of Donald Trump killed off hope of the TPP will be ratified. And China's officials say the so-called free trade area of the Asia-Pacific is core to Beijing's agenda and says Australia is one of the countries which could make efforts to advance the deal. And the results of a joint study on the region-wide proposal are expected to be announced at the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit in Peru, followed by a set of policy recommendations. Now, China is not a member of the TPP, and its demise has made room for Beijing to push forward more aggressively with a broader regional trade pact, which involves Australia. And the idea for this uh, free trade area for the Asia-Pacific Agreement, it was initially put forward by the Washington 10 years ago, but it never progressed very far. And it's taken up with gusto by China in 2014 as part of its response to the US-led TPP. Yeah, in other words, China is aiming to annex a very large and profitable area of the world or world trade. That's right. right. Now, good financial markets and solid economic conditions have offset any anxieties about the election of Donald Trump as president. The ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index inched up 0.3% in the week ending 13th of November after a solid 3.2 rise the previous week. Households' views on economic conditions over the next 12 months were up 1.2%. Views towards economic conditions over the next five years surged 3.5%. And all up, the solid domestic economy is keeping consumer confidence above its long-run average, and I reckon the share market's doing that too, Gary. The Reserve Bank of Australia is struggling with uncertainties about the strength of the labour market and the implications for inflation, along with soaring house prices on the East Coast. The minutes of its board meetings released this week said the economy, quote, appeared to have continued growing at a moderate pace in the third quarter, but there were, quote, significant uncertainty about the outlook for consumption growth. Households' expectations of income gains, which is a key factor in spending and save decisions, savings decisions are unknown. The RBA raised concerns about the jobs market, where the jobs market is dominated by part-time work. The minutes also noted that commodity prices in terms of trade had fallen by more than expected and that demand, particularly from China, was lower than expected. All up, it noted the overall assessment was that risks around the inflation forecast are broadly balanced 
and traders are now saying there's less likelihood of a rate cut next year and some are even pricing in the prospect of a rate hike in 2018. That'd follow the pattern that's likely in the, in the States as well. Well, I'd say, look, if it's not by a lot, but for the first time in two years, markets are actually betting that the Reserve Bank is more likely to lift rates and lower them next year. Index swaps are pricing in an 8% chance over the next 12 months the cash rate will rise from its current low of 1.5% according to Credit Suisse data. Yeah, and that, to some degree, reinforced by uh, Lowe's speech. In Melbourne. It was a CEDAR meeting in Melbourne, and he what, what he said at that meeting too was that the Reserve Bank wasn't in a hurry to cut rates. So that was significant. Now, uh, to corporate news, an agribusiness elders has reported full-year net profit of $51.6 million, That's uh, dollars. That's up 35%. The company's underlying profit rose $13.2 million to $41.2 million. Elders claims a $15.7 million improvement in underlying earnings before interest and tax to $56.2 million was driven by improved sales in retail and livestock agency performance, and greater efficiencies and growth in line with the Elders' eight-point plan also delivered an improved bottom line. Strong operating cash flows of $48.7 million for the year reduced net debt by $50.1 million. And Elders, of course, is Australia's biggest agribusiness, and that's very good for the sector. Fortescue Metals has inked a $473 million loan with the China Development Bank leasing company for a fleet of eight large iron ore carriers now under construction. And this transaction is the largest direct funding arrangement provided by a major Chinese financier for a non-Chinese company in Australia. And the funding will cover 80% of the, 85% of the construction costs of the vessels. And Fortescue Chief Executive Nev Power says it's a groundbreaking deal which strengthens Fortescue's relations with China. I can only think, see good things coming of this, Gary. And Fortescue with its own bulk carrier. Very, very good. It's a very good story. And the other interesting one, Gary, is that after mixing wine and beer for 15 years, Lion sold its top quality Australian wine brands Petaluma, Crozer, St. Hallett, Napstein, Stonia and Tatachilla to Accolade Wines. The sales price was not disclosed, but the market speculation is that Lion, which is owned by Japan's Kirin Corporation, picked up close to $100 million from the sale. Lion Chief Executive Officer Stuart Irvine said the time had come for Lion to get out of the wine business when the returns from beer beer and cider, where Lion has a bigger business, were better. And the sale, of course, comes at a time when Accolade, which is Australia's second largest wine company, with brands including Hardy's, Leasingdom and Grant Birch, is planned to float on the market until early 2017, five and a half years after it was acquired by Champ Private Equity. I remember, Gary, when Lion expanded into wine in 2001, and it paid something like $200 million to acquire the prestigious Petaluma brand, which controlled Mitchelton and Napstein labels. And I remember it was was huge and of course at the time the wine market was very different lion which was then lion nathan was australia's second biggest brewer and it was competing against fosters which at that time was building a wine business and of course the fosters wine business has now become treasury wine estates and uh, fosters was of course sold off and that's it for this week gary next week we have a terrific interview with matt simpson from think markets he's a foreign currency trader And it's going to be fascinating, his views about what's happening in the foreign exchange market. And that's going to be very vigorous in the next few years. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's it for us for this week. In the meantime, you can keep up with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizz or on Facebook. Stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.